So this is the fifth in a series of talks on the anatomy of ignorance. And the focus of the talk today is on how we transform our more personal or individual <coughs> ignorance and the actual uh, steps for transformation that we can uh, practice and work with and develop. The whole series is based on the really insight or the finding that identifying the forms of our ignorance can be one of the ways to develop a map of transformation that can help us to go very deeply. We find that uh, sense that the root problem of human life is ignorance in many traditions and we've looked the last few times at the interesting way that in some traditions <coughs> uh, ignorance is seen as the root problem and probably the major competing model is that uh, evil is the core problem or that bad people or evil people is the core problem. And I, I've suggested how in our culture we have both models operative really in different parts of our lives. Uh, that often we have the model of, of ignorance as the problem can really be the basis for much of our educational system. And the emphasis maybe on scientific research and on different ways of placing the quest for knowledge at the center of culture. And in other parts of our culture, we may emphasize that evil is the problem. I think you know, some, two of the areas where this is most obvious are in some of the ways that we work with um, uh, jails and prisons, often in terms more of punishment, although I've mentioned how that's varied historically. You know, and there have been times when being in prison was seen as a chance to uh, be a penitent, engage in the acts of being in a reformatory, <laughs> and so forth, and that it's gone back and forth historically between those two models of punishment and more one of learning and redemption. Interesting. And another area where the model of evil is often prevalent <coughs> is in foreign policy. Um, I think that's true probably of most, most countries. <laughs> yeah. One writer said, where, when countries go abroad, wisdom goes out the window. <laughs> Not, again, not, not focusing on ours, but we might know ours the best. Um, so, um, seeing ignorance as the root problem is both sobering and hopeful because essentially those who have pointed out the way that seeing ignorance as a core issue can be one of the ways of both understanding the human condition and responding to the human condition often point out that the normal human uh, situation is one of not knowing, of ignorance, of confusion. And they, they typically say that it's possible, nonetheless, to come to understanding, wisdom, knowledge. And so we find the image at the origin of Western culture uh, from uh, Plato, the human condition is likened to being chained in the dark in a cave, watching flickering shadows on a wall projected by, from behind us by people who are flashing a torch past a row of walking people that create shadows on the wall we are fixated on the shadows, think that the shadows are real, and live our lives in the dark. Some have thought this is a, um, a very early vision of the possibilities of television. 
just watching the shadows and thinking they're real. You know. um, and others, you know, like Rumi from the Islamic tradition, in you know, some centuries later, likening the human condition to be a drunk, like to being a drunk walking from tavern to tavern, saying, Who am I? Where did I come from? What is the soul? I have no idea. To the Buddha, saying that the basic human condition is as if being asleep. It's likened to being asleep. And then with all of these, there is the possibility of um, coming to knowledge, coming to wisdom, moving out of darkness, awakening, coming to to the light. In Plato, one learns how to move out of the cave and come into the light and see things as they really are. And then it's also quite important, we'll come back to this, once one's out of the cave, part of one's work is to go back into the cave and help others to come back out, right? So that's, this, is, this is a vision. And you know, in our modern times, we have um, in the psychological traditions also this understanding that we are um, driven by unconscious patterns. You know, in the work of Freud and psychologists since then, there's also a very similar model that we are driven by unconscious um, forces. And that we're, in a sense, at the mercy of them, that we are largely unconscious and a little bit like sleepwalkers at the mercy of these patterns, most of which are, uh, to use that language, neurotic. Freud was a little less hopeful than the Buddha or Plato or Rumi. And he said that the best that one could hope for, he said this at least one place, was to be a well-adjusted neurotic. A little less hopeful. (laughs) And so I'm going to take the hopeful uh, road, as it were, and um, suggest that both seeing ignorance as a root cause is, is sobering. We have to look quite carefully at the depths of where we're confused, where we're ignorant, where we don't know. But that um, if we do so with a map of how that occurs and then how we might transform ourselves and others, transform that ignorance and have very practical steps to do so, it becomes more hopeful. And that's where I would like to land, (laughs) is with that more uh, hopeful, although at times (coughs) sobering look at the extent to which we may be not awake, in the dark, relatively unconscious, and so forth. In this series, I've identified three main forms of ignorance. Uh, One of them is more personal. And that's, uh, I'm going to be focusing especially on that today. More personal, we might say this is particularly what's illuminated by uh, psychology. It's looking at our personal patterns, our personal conditioning that may come out of family background, uh, to some extent out of social conditioning, uh, our own particularly particular life trajectory and what what developed, where we got stuck, where there was wounding, and so forth. There's also a second main form of ignorance, which is that that I would call more social types of conditioning, more social kinds of ignorance. And I uh, have looked at that some, probably we'll come back to that in the series, but that would be especially obvious when we look to the different kinds of confusion and conditioning around all the different social categories like gender, race, age, nationality, um, what level of education, and so forth, that we all live with and that have often deeply influenced human behavior and that we are all to a certain extent in the grips of. We can see it more easily when we look to other cultures or to past times. We can say, oh, gosh, those people were really caught in that. They were so caught in that kind of conditioning about um, maybe about race or about, uh, you know, maybe 
uh, women a hundred years ago and men had very, very fixed notions by and large about gender. Right? We can look back and see that. We, of course, have gone beyond all that conditioning and are free and have, do not have any of that social conditioning left because, because we see all, all the errors of the past, right? And we await those who will come in a hundred years and look at those people in 2013. Oh my gosh, they couldn't see past their noses. <laughs> you know, so uh, very interesting. And we can, you know, we can see that in all sorts of ways. There are all sorts of other social views, social ideologies that come down. They get, you know, one of the easiest examples to see is all of what is in our minds and our behavior related to body image, right? how we look, ideals of beauty, ideals of appearance, and, and so forth, weight, all this stuff. There's heavy social conditioning, and it's very different across different cultures. In some cultures, to be very well endowed, so to speak, is the social ideal. Right? And uh, in our culture, at least especially for women, the ideal is to be um, um, the survivor of a uh, starvation diet, <laughs> often, if I can say it like that. A little bit exaggerated, but you, I think you resonate with what I'm saying, right? To be extremely abnormally thin, right? And it, of course, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but this is very, can be very um, linked with a lot of suffering, you know, especially for uh, teenage girls. I think we, we know that. Um, and so there's that social conditioning, that social level of ignorance, and there's also what I'm calling a universal type of ignorance, which is particularly identified, I think, in spiritual traditions. In Buddhist tradition, this would be not knowing the, uh, really not knowing broadly the nature of things, and particularly pointed out that we don't really understand how things are changing so quickly. We don't understand impermanence, in part because our minds uh, don't really see so clearly or in a penetrative way into things that our minds are very um, conditioned and rapid and distracted. And that one of the things that happens when we develop meditation is that we slow down the mind and we start tuning into impermanence and we see the world quite differently. We see the world as this continually changing, buzzing phenomenon. You know, and we sometimes may have that, those experiences at certain times, but normally we, we, are, we are organized in our experience by all sorts of concepts and words, and we don't see impermanence, or we don't see the way that when we grasp onto things, we tend to suffer, or when we push away, or when we are uh, in some ways um, compulsively uh, grabbing and pushing away, that we somehow think this will bring happiness. So there's a confusion there. And there's also a confusion about ourselves. And we think of ourselves as much more separate than we really are. And the, the, these are the core teachings. You know, and so there's, we might say, a spiritual level of ignorance. And all of this, uh, ignorance is not so much an, uh, a not knowing of certain facts, but it's a kind of deep and pervasive unknowing. That's like being in the dark, or being in a cloud, or being in a fog. And we all have that to a certain extent. And we're even driven uh, by that. Um, a few words about the more personal level, a few more words about the more personal level, and then I want to work with our handout and particularly focus on the transformation. So last time, I gave uh, a more detailed account of some of the ways that this personal conditioning occurs. And I talked particularly about how we all, to some extent, because of our upbringing, our conditioning, some of it very much related to the social, we have certain patterns which typically develop young where we get locked in to certain kinds of um, beliefs and certain kinds of behaviors. 
we are, in other words, driven unconsciously by certain patterns that develop. Now, some of these are positive and some of them are negative. Last time I was here, I talked about how it's part of the way the brain works and part of the way our whole brain and nervous system works is that we are, to a large extent, unconscious about many of our activities. We don't consciously uh, get in the car and go through all the different steps that it takes to turn on the ignition, pull up the brake, uh, do, you know, look here, look there, drive out, and so forth. We've learned how to do that. We learn all sorts of things, and we actually can go through, um, <coughs> surprisingly, unconsciously in something like driving. It's, uh, most of us are periodically scared by how unconscious we can be in our driving, right? Say, my gosh, where was I the last three minutes? And yet somehow I, I went from Fairfax to San Anselmo, <laughs> right? And yet where was my mind? Where was my attention? And this is partly because, as I mentioned last time, the way the brain works is that we typically learn something for the first time and need a lot of attention. But as we learn something, it recedes into unconsciousness and something like driving a car, riding a bike, maybe cooking a meal and all that. We know how to do it, and we don't have to tell ourselves, okay, chop here and chop in this way and have the angle of the knife be like this. We don't do that each time. Maybe the first time we needed instruction and we did it like that, but we, we learn how to do that in an ordinary way. Now this can be, this is just how we work, and it's very advantageous. When it comes to certain uh, limit, limitations or certain negative experiences that we had when we were young, it works the same way. And we saw some of, and this is some of what constitutes our ignorance. And I mentioned again that uh, in terms of our patterns, all of us have certain ways that we learned how to be, and we had certain kinds of uh, uh, core beliefs that are there for us. And I identified some of them as positive and some of them as negative. Some of the negative ones are more obvious, and these form the core ignorance that we want to investigate. So, for example, many of us, for various reasons, came out of being young with a sense that something is not okay with me. I am flawed, or there's something wrong, or I'm not inadequate, or I can be this way, but I can't show my emotions. And again, for complex reasons, we may have those kind of patterns. We may have patterns like the examples I've given a number of times, I may learn anger is bad, and I suppress my anger, I don't express it, or that this emotion is bad, or that um, uh, I learn uh, somehow that um, um, people can't be trusted. I, we all have certain what we might call limiting beliefs that are there. We also have certain positive beliefs. I may learn I'm okay as I am from in certain contexts, or uh, I can express my emotions, or I, I can trust people, or the world is relatively safe. But most of us also have a certain stock of what we might call limiting beliefs that we develop when we're young, often out of ways that um, child <coughs> development was not optimal. And for all of us, child development was not optimal. Right? There are certain things where we were wounded, or there was something that didn't quite work well, or there was something that got passed on intergenerationally that's been passed on for many generations. Right? Some view of human nature, some of that comes from the religions, some of it comes from the culture, some of it comes from social views. I've mentioned sometimes how there were those studies done where African-American girls uh, were shown through studies at, a, you know, at age four or five when they were given those uh, in the doll test, were given a black doll and a white doll, and they were asked, which is the good doll? It's the white doll. Which is the doll like you? It's the black doll. That was in the 1940s and 50s and may not have changed so much. Some other tests have shown that. So those girls at age four or five through the social conditioning, which then could merge maybe with the family conditioning 
already had a deeply internalized sense, I am bad, I am not okay, and lived with that their entire lives, often very unconsciously, right? And we have versions of that, you know, and a lot of the work of psychology has been to identify all the different patterns of limiting beliefs. Now we also, as I mentioned, have, most of us also have a whole set of more supportive beliefs or understandings that could be, in many cases, the opposites. But most, of, all of us have a mix of those. And it's uh, a lot of the emphasis of working with the personal uh, uh, ignorance has to do with seeing where we, each of us have certain limiting beliefs, what they are, and then how can we transform them? Because we could see how they can be, be quite negative. And so, um, again, if you look to different psychological systems, most of them identify five or ten main forms, main ways that we get stuck or that we get confused, you know. And uh, one book that does this in a very nice way, I brought it in this time, is a book by uh, Tara Bennett-Goleman. Some of you know a book called Emotional Alchemy, which is, uses mindfulness and loving-kindness, but also um, uses a psychological system uh, that talks about these basic beliefs as schemas that we each have. You know, people, different people use different language. I've been trained to use the language of identifying core unconscious beliefs, both positive and negative. So do you see how we can have those? Each of them had those. And so, for example, uh, uh, Tara Bennett-Goleman, she identifies models that might be connected with a sense of abandonment, not receiving the support we needed. There may be some kind of deprivation. There may be some kind of uh, treatment that was unkind, um, where we were in some ways dominated or subjugated. There can be mistrust. There may be a sense of unlovability, which I think in our culture is very, very strong. Uh, we can have a sense of exclusion. I don't fit. I don't belong. Are any of these resonating? We, we all have some of these to some extent. Another one, vulnerability. We may have models of perfectionism. And we have models that I'm a failure and so forth. And I know that for um, myself, one of the main ways that I've explored these in working with people has been in this work I've done over the years uh, on transforming the judgmental mind. And have worked with a number of people over about the last 12 years where part of the focus of the work is to identify and access these uh, core beliefs and transform them. And it often takes a long time to access them, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But finding with people, just to give a few, a few examples, you know, one example which I sometimes give is a person who was t given very, very negative stories by his brother and father and had the sense that um, whatever I do isn't going to go well. And still had that as an adult, you know. The interesting thing about the core beliefs is, think of something like, anger is bad, I shouldn't be angry. The core beliefs actually, at the time that they were developed, were protective in nature. In other words, I developed the core belief, anger is bad, so I can suppress my own anger, not be angry for my parents, and thereby get love and nurturance. And so actually, all of these core beliefs were essentially coping mechanisms that were the best we could do at the time. Were this a perfect world, they would fall away when they were no longer needed at age 18. Okay, here's the deposit for all my limiting core beliefs. Let's be a mature adult now. But it doesn't work like that, right? They continue on into our 20s, 30s, 40s, and if we don't work with them, they continue with us until we die. And so many of us have spent a good deal of our adult life looking at our own limiting beliefs, right? And trying to work with them. Uh, and the fact that they are workable and can be identified uh, is really the basis for the whole profession of psychotherapy. And it also comes up a lot in meditation. We, we work with this. This is a significant part of what occurs in teaching meditation. We work with these core beliefs. 
But it's important to see that they're not in itself, as it were, the enemy, because they were originally, in a sense, protective. They were ways that we could be. Does that make some sense? I'm giving, I'm kind of condensing like a, a century of psychology <laughs> and some perspectives into a short amount of time. But I, I hope the examples can help, or you know, the example of anger, that again, if I have that view, anger is bad, I will tend to judge myself when I'm angry, I'll judge others. If I have the core belief that I'm not lovable, this will come up in all sorts of situations. If I have the core belief that I'm going to mess up. And again, uh, the, a lot of the people I'm talking about actually are quite high functioning. You think anyone with these core beliefs would be a basket case? Not so. We can be very, very high functioning. And by we, I literally mean we. <laughs> we can be quite high functioning. <laughs> and isn't that interesting, right? It reminds me, I mean, this is, this is an exaggerated case. I remember a cartoon which showed this man sitting at a desk with his head at this like 45 degree angle and his mouth having this strange protuberances and so forth. And at his desk he had a, um, like a, a desk plate which was facing outward. And on the desk plate it says, neurotic as hell, but still functional. <laughs> So, um, and so, so do you get a sense of the territory? We can have this and, you know, we, again, I may have, I may be very functional, I may have abandonment issues because something happened, you know, very typical if there were divorces when we were young, you know, or I might have a sense that if something bad happened, as children often do, I'm to blame. Very, very common with divorces. So, okay, so given that that's, there's a map there, we can identify these. How do we work with this? And this is where I want to take us through uh, the handout. And I developed a sequence of 10 steps to transform this personal ignorance. We're not going to complete it and have everything worked out by the end of our session today. Sorry. Um, but, but we can really, um, we can really look at the, the steps. And I thought 10 is a number that has a lot of resonance in many cultures. So I had 10 rather than 9 or 11. But I think it works out. Okay? And so I'll just go through these. And this is really a map of transformation. And you'll see that actually a lot of the early ones are like, what kind of resources do we need to go deeply? To go deeply and to transform ourselves because the whole uh, motivation using the model of ignorance is that actually if we don't touch our ignorance, we stay on the surface of life. We stay more superficial. And a lot of our social and cultural conditioning is to stay more superficial. I think that sometimes busyness keeps us more superficial. <coughs> a lot of our media can keep us more superficial. Newspapers rarely bring in the depth dimension. If you think of it, they're just reporting things, but we don't have very good explanations of why things are happening. Can you imagine a newspaper article that says, um, you know, this or that happened in this city or in this country, you know, this is due to deep ignorance. <laughs> you know, or pointing to you know, how, the, how the ignorance developed that led to that happening. Right? We rarely do that. We take things on the surface. Right? And the motivation here is to go more deeply and is to be able to live more from that depth. So the first probably, the first five of these as I developed it, this, this model, are really supports that are actually there for any way that we want to transform ignorance, whether it's the personal, the more social, or the more spiritual and universal. And I have to say that those all overlap. You know, there's, they intersect. So the first five are really areas that are more general. They're like the tools that we need, the resources that we need to go on this journey. 
And we need a lot of resources to cut through ignorance. Really, really crucial. You know, and so um, my hope is that we see this map and we may see where am I with a particular form of ignorance or a particular part of our own journey. Where am I with this? So initially, we have to have the motivation. This is number one. We have to have the motivation to learn her change. There has to be, and I think that a lot of that is um, innate. We have a certain amount of um, uh, innate curiosity, wish to know. Children certainly have that. But we have to somehow have the motivation, whatever age we are, to learn, to change, to grow. And that can come from a lot of different sources. For some of us, what brought us to meditation, what brought us to the quest to overcome ignorance may have been our own suffering at times, may have been difficulties. You know? uh, for others, it may have been really having a deep interest in exploring, that curiosity, really wanting to inquire. That was my original motivation. I initially really wanted to explore meditation to really see deeply into the nature of things and into the nature of the mind. And I thought that those who came to meditation um, out of trying to transform her, her work with her own suffering were just simply had different motivation. And I, you know, I think I thought myself a little bit better. They have suffering. I'm just here for the pure quest for knowledge. <laughs> and so some of my first learning, within a few years, as you might gather, was that, hmm, there's suffering I didn't know about. <laughs> and there are roots of suffering in myself, right? So we have different motivations initially. And I think the different motivations uh, get touched at different times. Some of us may want to go more deeply because we want to help others. There may be the motivation to learn by service or really wanting to be of use or make use of my gifts or whatever to really help others. So the motivation, some positive motivation has to be there at the beginning and, we, and something that we continually want to cultivate. So I think all of these, especially these first five, we have to keep on strengthening and developing all the time. The second is that we have to, in some way, find different ways or methods to start going more deeply. And there are a number of them. You know, we could point to meditative approaches, psychological approaches, you know, working with dreams, coming at learning through art, you know, coming at it through all sorts of ways, through interaction, through service. Some of us may learn especially in close relationships, in family, in community. We have to have some uh, kinds of methods or supports that provide us a way of opening up, of learning, and so forth. We also need to have a certain level of trust and safety in order to go more deeply. It's quite important. We have to really feel like we can let down all those, um, all those energies that are there for survival and really be able to open with a sense of safety. You know, there's that beautiful passage that has been important to me from Thomas Merton, the uh, Catholic contemplative, who said, who talks about touching that inner uh, our, our deep inner being. He says, the inner self is precisely that self which cannot be tricked or manipulated by anyone. The inner self is like a very shy, wild animal that never appears at all whenever an alien presence is at hand and comes out only when all is peaceful, in silence, when one is untroubled and alone. That inner self cannot be lured by anyone or anything because it responds to no lure except that of the divine freedom. That shy, wild animal, does that resonate? There's something in us which wants that sense of, needs that sense of relative safety and connection in order to um, go on this journey, to really, to really follow this path of, of working through ignorance. 
the third type of resource, really, the third step. And see, all of this is before we even start touching our ignorance. These are like, we're climbing a mountain, we have to get equipped. Or we're going deep sea diving, we need to get equipped, whatever metaphor you use. And I I think these are quite important. So some of us may be really uh, very much developing the resources. It's completely crucial. If we try to go more deeply without the resources and the support, we won't get so far. You know? When I was first meditating, I met people who were these heroic people who had tried to meditate without community and without teachers because they weren't available, like from the 1950s or the 1960s, some of them. And they were very heroic and beautiful, but they, it was so easy for them to get stuck for two years or five years. It was, I was, had a lot of compassion hearing some of the stories because they didn't have the resources that we have, especially being in this part of the world. So we gather the resources. We start to develop what I'm calling awakened qualities. We start to develop mindfulness, or we start to develop wisdom. We start to develop compassion, the qualities of the heart, the qualities of the clear mind, and so forth. These will be our tools and our resources as we go further. And again, this could be done in a variety of ways you know, within different traditions, different approaches. And then we start with number four, we start investigating our experience. And again, this is done in different ways. Here I'll especially make use of the fact that we're working with mindfulness, with insight practice, with developing heart practices. And I'll, I'll use a little bit more the vocabulary. And I'll also make use of the examples that particularly I know from working with people around judgmental mind and identifying core beliefs that way. So we start with our own experience and develop the capacity to investigate our experience. This is not a given, right? Most of us had to learn how to have a stable enough attention to be able to see experience clearly. We need training. This is true whether one is doing uh, meditative practice or doing psychological practice. So we have to develop the capacity to be able to have a stable mind, develop a certain degree of concentration. Uh, And we do this initially in what we might call training settings, like here, like Spirit Rock or retreats or workshops. In a training setting, we develop certain capacities that are necessary to go more deeply to get at the ignorance. We develop the ability to be mindful, to look carefully at experience. And we may need some special training at times to look at certain areas of experience. We may need to, for example, be uh, much more embodied to connect with the body. That was certainly true for me. I had to do a lot of practices like like, uh, Tai Chi, later Qigong, Uh, ways of being in the body. We may need to develop uh, more fluidity with our emotions to really uh, develop what Daniel Goleman calls emotional intelligence, to know know the, the landscape of our emotions. We may need to work more to see clearly our own minds. And then the fifth, and this is really the last of the core supports, is I thought for our culture there are three supports which are particularly important. One is to develop the capacity for compassion and the open heart. Partly because as we go more deeply, we really require a lot of compassion. Part of what we see when we look into our own ignorance are places of suffering and past suffering, and even places where there's been wounding or even devastation or trauma. That's there at times. We need a lot of heart practices to help us with our own balance, with our own ways to work with difficult energies. Uh, Secondly, and this is particularly, these three are particularly important in our culture because a lot of the conditioning in our culture is that of a kind of individualism in which we're separated from others and we kind of, we try to do things on our own and we're especially uh, uh, caught up with the mental. Very pervasive in our culture, it's almost like one could say maybe a little cynically that the culture 
tends towards the individual sitting alone with the computer, engaging in more mental activities. You know, that, that, that's uh, a very pervasive model and many of us, like, of course we're connected, but we need, I think we need these supports of uh, connecting with the heart, connecting with the body, and connecting with community as supports for the journey. It, I think those all counter in some ways uh, some of our, our core cultural and social conditioning. So that's the fifth. So the sixth through the tenth, we've been equipped, we've gone to REI, we're ready for the journey, ready to climb the mountain or go into the ocean, we've got our expensive gear, we've gone to Spirit Rock workshops, we, we've got a, a library of books, you know, we have ten spiritual books by our bedside that we read every evening or at least don't read and have the comfort of knowing that they're there unread. <laughs> Not to be underestimated. <laughs> um, in many traditions, books by themselves were seeking, seen as having a certain energy. Okay, so I'm making a little bit of fun, but also not so. Okay, so then we go to the sixth. The sixth is find a doorway in. This is where we start looking. We find a doorway in, and often this is a doorway that's connected with some sense of dissatisfaction. When I work with people with judgments, the doorway in is looking at the judgmental mind when it manifests. We need some kind of doorway in. For the Buddha, in his quest, the doorway in was, you remember, the four heavenly messengers, noticing, oh my gosh, there is suffering in this world, there is aging, there is illness, there is death. I didn't really know that. For some of us, this is actually, we get opened up by suffering. We didn't know that. And we need some, some doorway in where we start looking more carefully, you know, where we look more carefully at particular phenomena. It might be that I need to look at these issues to have my relationship develop well, you know, that I can't really express emotions. And we look more carefully. What's going on? What was my conditioning? we start looking more deeply. The doorway in might be dreams. It might be some, uh, it might be helping others. It might be some kind of discipline which requires continual growth. We need some doorway in to really uh, start opening us up further. Again, this is more of a systemic map. A lot of this happens just anyway, right, in our lives. This is like a, this is like a map. And then the seventh, we keep on looking carefully. We keep investigating. We start going more deeply. We start to, for example, when I work with people with judgmental mind, we start not only noting the judgments and seeing all the places they appear, but we start seeing, are there certain patterns are there certain triggers? What are the triggers where I get lost? Are, what are my patterns for my most basic ways that I get confused or lost or dysfunctional or suffer? We start to actually have profound interest in our own suffering or in ways we get lost or stuck. You can see how to do that requires a certain amount of confidence. Right? It really requires those five earlier levels of support. Because if I'm going to say, yeah, I really want to study my suffering, you know, you have to be careful who you tell that to among your friends. <laughs> but you can see how it's, it's actually taking a radical stance. It's saying, I want to really look at this. I'm interested. I'm interested. I want to learn. You know, I want to study my fear. You know, on the wall of my study, I have this uh, drawing from the Bread and Puppet Theater the man who set out to study fear, which was one of their theater productions. You know, that's always inspired me. Can you imagine the one who set out to study fear? You know, or the one who set out to study um, what makes me afraid? Or where do I have my own self-judgment arise? What's, what's it about? What are the triggers? What are the patterns? Can I really look at that? I know that's been really important for me in my own development to have places where I could really do that in a sustained way with guidance, with support. We keep on doing that at a certain point, this is number eight, 
we begin to bring into view, and this can take quite a while, we begin to access, get close <coughs> to the territory of what I'm calling core beliefs. I start to see, oh, there seems to be a core belief here, and again, we can have some help. I start to access the unconscious. The unconscious starts being more conscious. I start seeing the patterns. I start saying, it sure feels like I have a sense of, I'm not so good right now. Let me look at that. In this social setting, I have some self-consciousness. I look at that, oh, what's that about? So this takes a lot of courage, right? This is where those heart practices are crucial to hold everything with compassion. I start accessing uh, those depths. I start bringing the deeply unconscious patterns to the surface. I start seeing them. And it can be hard, it can be scary, it can be unpredictable, and we need support, and it's possible. And this is, again, this is uh, good psychological work does exactly this. And again, many of you are therapists, I think, and maybe work with people like this regularly yourselves. And we do this also to a certain extent in meditation. And so I start to get a sense, and we start to bring into relief these core patterns. We start to see them. At the same time, once those become a little bit clear, we start giving support to what we might call the reversal of those core beliefs, to the transformation of the belief. We start actually giving focused energy, maybe to develop, if my core belief was anger is not okay, we may have a, a reversal of that, which means what might be very simple, anger is part of the human condition. And I start maybe actively learning to be present and balanced and non-reactive with anger. Or if I have a sense of I'm not okay, or there's something wrong with me, I deliberately cultivate ways of hanging out for periods of time where I have a sense of my own beauty and okayness and wonderfulness. You know, again, this can take, this. we can use meditative tools for this, we can design experiences, but this is part of the transformation process. We want these uh, really transformed core beliefs to get stronger and stronger. Ultimately, they will get stronger than the old beliefs, and the old beliefs will become increasingly irrelevant. That's how the transformation, but you see, at this point we've touched into the deep ignorance, and we're starting to come out of it. And then the, so that was the ninth, and the last one is really that we need to do a lot of this work in protected environments, like a meditation retreat, like psychological work, like maybe a close relationship. We need to do a certain amount of the work there, and then gradually we start bringing the learning into ordinary daily life. We can call this integration. We've moved through the transformative process, and now we're more interested in integration. And as we do that, we may then, as we've integrated ourselves, the, the piece I didn't include, if we wanted the 11th step, it would be, then we go back and help others. You know, then we meet others. You know, then, in Plato's model, one comes back out of, uh, from out of the cave and goes back in the cave and helps others. Or the Buddha actually has his own awakening, and he comes back for the last 45 years of his life and helps others. Or in the Zen oxherding pictures, after having done one's inner work, it's said that one enters the village with bliss-bestowing hands. So one's done one's work, and then one comes back and helps others. And this is, this is a map, you know, and we can see where we may be uh, wanting to develop. We can maybe say, you know, this is, again, not entirely linear. I presented it as if it's a little more linear, but it can be really seen as a way to direct one's own development. And I probably could take one or two or three sessions on each of the ten steps, right? <laughs> you know, that it's really, but this was my effort to do something contemporary that unpacks this first type of ignorance. We could do the same, have the same depth with the second and third as well. So I'll stop here. Maybe invite just a moment of silence, and then we can talk together.
So thank you for thank you for your good, careful attention. I appreciate it, and thank you also for the opportunity. I just really worked this out uh, yesterday and a little bit this morning. <laughs> so, you know. so uh, I thank you for the opportunity. Wouldn't without us being here, wouldn't have happened. So, any questions, comments, please. As you were talking, Byron Katie popped into my mind. Yeah. Um, the work. And yeah. I, I've been kind of as you've been talking. Can we can we use the, see if the mic works for the comments? I can I can help out with it, but we were doing it the last few days. We just turned it on. Yeah. Thanks. So I was saying that Byron Katie popped into my mind, and as you were talking, I was trying to draw parallels between her process and yeah. yours. Hers has four steps, I think, just, and you have ten, you go into more depths, but there seems to be a lot of parallels yeah. between asking, between looking at what you take to be, in her case, they, they're not necessarily core beliefs. I don't think yeah. it's quite as deep, but but things that you think are true. And yeah. her asking, is it true? And yeah. the, the other important question is, what would you be if you didn't yeah. believe this? Yeah. yeah, so multiple tools or techniques uh, reference to Byron Katie's work, which is a, a kind of inquiry practice, and probably a little less emphasis on community, on getting all the resources before you begin. Uh, but uh, tools like that can be very, very helpful. You know, I from you know, f identifying the first five aspects was important for me because I think we need a lot of support uh, on an ongoing basis, <coughs> and we need to have tools and support. And I think a rare individual maybe has had those and could work with those tools. Most people, this is long-term work, and we need community, we need support, we need um, to have practices of different kinds. But I think her contribution is very helpful. Yeah. We have time for just a, a few more comments or questions. Could just be to ask, can you clarify that or whatever, or please? Um, it seems to me that um, in regards to number nine, where you're talking about alternate waves, yeah, uh, that understanding some aspect of your of your ignorance transforms it yeah so that you don't necessarily need an alternative understanding what it is makes it will help make it go away mm-hmm um, you know at, at times uh, so the, so the comment was really about uh, can if I understand the limits like if I understand that this was a pattern will that sometimes be adequate in itself for transformation and um, I think in some cases, but there, there typically would be, you know, I think a lot of this, uh, a lot of the way these core beliefs developed what the, is that they were there particularly for certain kinds of situations. You know, like, they, like I say, originally they have uh, a positive or protective uh, intention. You know, again, we could see it maybe more clearly in some examples than others. And so they're kind of designed for particular situations. The core belief that anger is not good was designed for when I get angry or when I see anger in others. And um, sometimes uh, with some, you know, seeing, through, seeing through some of the beliefs, if we actually see them, the ones, I guess I would just say in my experience, the ones that are most deeply entrenched. Maybe some of the ones that are less powerful, sometimes we notice them and they drop away. That, that, may, that may be the case. But the ones that have the most power in us, generally we need to really uh, also open up to the positive. Now maybe those are already there. Maybe we've developed them in some way. Uh, but we're talking a little abstractly here, but, but uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Does, does the seeing because my, my experience is also that we need to see these forms of ignorance not just once or twice, but maybe 5,000 times. Or we had, maybe need to see them enough so that we can really recognize them. So when I work with people, 
a lot of the a lot of what we actually do is develop ways to know that the core beliefs are operative. How do you know that in your body? You know, is there a way that the body forms around that core? Because one way to interpret these core beliefs is not that the, they're just on a cognitive level and beliefs, but that the, they're actually whole ways of organizing our being, our nervous system, our experience. And so, it, you know, like my sense of I'm not okay is going to manifest as a certain way that my body forms. For me, it would be something like I'd be a little bit caved in, I'd be tensed, and so forth. There'd be certain thoughts, and there'd be certain emotions. It'd be like a little bit like a cloud or something like that. Yeah. Um, please, maybe uh, we'll do two more, and, th- and then, we'll, then we'll finish with that. Yeah. Um, this is really, really, really important work. Yeah. Um, I can think for myself of um, many years of having certain beliefs about myself, and it's manifested into hoarding. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm I I've been working on it, you know, on a superficial level, but I'm thinking now I need to really go deeper and find out what yeah. what's really going on in that that's making me hold on to things or collect things that aren't necessary, and uh, this is really powerful. Thank you so yeah, much for bringing welcome. that Thank up. Thank you, yeah. It's, um, again, this takes a lot of courage, but it's also the spirit of inquiry. It's like, the, it's really which we develop in mindfulness. It's like, what is this? How am I, you know? And it's really the willingness to, really to uh, look and even question everything. Yeah. So maybe last one in the back. Oh, I just wanted to say, Donald, thank you for coming back in the cave to help us. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming back in the cave to help us. <laughs> I, like most of us, have dual residence. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure many of us uh, many, how many of you can identify with having dual residence? <laughs> look around, look around, look around at your fellow dual residence figures. Yeah, and and we just keep going. And we, but but thank you. But yeah, but the the map. I, I find I, you know I, I realize that this is a a large map, and we could equally well take, like I say, took a ses- take a session on each of these. Could do that. Uh, I'm not sure I will, but I could. It'd be a good book. Be a good book. <laughs> Another book. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a really and it's um, yeah. I think I think I like that eleventh step of to the extent that we have done this work to then to help others. You know, that's you know, and we do that in all sorts of ways. Helping others might be through doing artwork. You know doesn't mean stereotypically helping others as a teacher or therapist or you know, doctor or something like this, but I think uh, I would interpret helping others as using our gifts fully, whatever that is. Could be Thomas Merton lived in solitude, but he was a writer, you know, so helped others in tremendous ways. So, yeah, so thank you. Thank you for that, and thank you for your attention, and may we each... Um, Keep developing in these ten ways. See which of the ten we're drawn to. Maybe, maybe just to close by, if this, uh, if this list, this map resonated with you, take a look as we close, just for a moment, and say, you know, what in the talk or in this map uh, resonated with me in terms of what my own next steps are. And then what is my intention coming out of our morning session? And then to close, may the may the fruits of our morning session, our time together be enjoyed. 
by all of us and be shared uh, with those in our lives and even beyond our immediate circles out into the world, ultimately for the benefit of all. Thank you. Thank you very kindly. To be continued. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.